We now come to the time of our sermon passage, and this week we're continuing on in our sermon series in the book of Exodus. So I invite you, uh, it's printed for you in your, in your bulletin, but if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn there, or um, open it on your Bible app, on your phone, will be in Exodus 12, uh, verses 1 and 2, and then uh, verses 14 through 30. This is Exodus 12, God's Word, good, beautiful, and true. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. This is a day you are to commemorate. For the generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast. On the first day, remove the yeast from your houses, for whoever eats anything with yeast in it from the first day to the seventh must be cut off from Israel. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly, and another one on the seventh day. Do no work at all on these days except to prepare food for everyone to eat. That is all you may do. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread because it was on this very day that I brought your divisions out of Egypt. Celebrate this day as a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. In the first month you are to eat bread made without yeast from the evening of the 14th day to the evening of the 21st day. For seven days no yeast is to be found in your houses for anyone. Whether farmer or native-born who eats anything with yeast in it must be cut off from the community of Israel. Eat nothing made with yeast. Wherever you live, you must eat unleavened bread. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes to the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them. It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was a loud wailing in Egypt for someone, for there was not a house without someone dead. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in this uh, second sermon about this event of Passover. And it's a challenging read. And I pray, Lord, that you would work as this confronts us, as we are uh, maybe even uncomfortable with this passage. I pray, Lord, that you would point us to Jesus. For that's the point. That's what this is. An arrow pointing forward to your work in Christ. Give us eyes to see and hearts to understand, hearts to love what we see. Change us and show us Jesus. Pray this in his name. You may remember this, so last June there was a new federal holiday added to the calendar. It wasn't a new holiday created out of whole cloth, but it was all over the news. Um, June 19th, Juneteenth. 
Um, and what Juneteenth is, it was called uh, colloquially, it's called like the Black Independence Day. Um, but what it celebrates is this. June 19th, 1865, the, uh, the Civil War has been over, at least generally uh, surrendered in Appomattox Courthouse a few months earlier. But what had happened there in that surrender and the Emancipation Proclamation two years earlier, Abraham Lincoln declaring that slavery was over, it had taken a long time to spread out. The United States is a big place, especially then. <laughs> On June 19, 1865, a general called uh, the last name Granger arrived in Galveston, Texas, kind of the furthest flung place you could get in the United States at the time. And it had become a place where slave owners had fled. As the war was going on, they were worried they were going to lose their, their, their slaves, and so they fled to the furthest point they could. And so there were scores and scores of people now living in Galveston. General Granger arrives there with his Union Army, and they march down the streets, and they declare, and they tell the people there something that they could not have imagined even just a few years before, that your slavery is over, that the people who bought your family, the people who used your family, you no longer have to call them master. And it became a celebration right then, obviously. <laughs> and then that very next year, the first Juneteenth, was celebrated in Galveston, Texas. And as uh, time spread and people moved, it began to be a celebration across the United States in these different, uh, in the black community. And it was celebrated with food. It was like a, another Fourth of July, this big Independence Day. And this past year, as I said, became a federal holiday. It's on the calendar. It'll probably pop up on your, your iPhone and remind you it's Juneteenth, June 19th this year. But what is celebrating is this ideal built into the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. It celebrates the idea that that is becoming more real and more powerful in the United States. It's something worth celebrating. Well, I mention all of that because what we have here in our passage is the beginning of a holiday, the beginning of a commemoration that happened every single year on the Jewish calendar. And what it celebrates is this key idea that God brings newness. God brings newness. Now that could be shorthand, that could be a one-sentence shorthand of the gospel, that God through Jesus Christ brings newness into this world. In fact, we talk about the gospel as uh, the good news that through Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection, God has brought what? Forgiveness, transformation, and hope, newness to this world marred by sin. And that idea that God brings newness, it's one that runs like a thread through all of Scripture. In Exodus, the book of Exodus, is kind of like the second chapter of that coming to be. God bringing newness into this world. The first chapter started back in Genesis. God made promises to this man named Abraham in this time of great darkness and violence in the world. He makes promise to this man, Abraham. And he says that through your family, I'm not going to bring just judgment. Just judgment will come. Justice will be done. Wrongs will be made right. But through your family, all nations on this earth will be blessed. And right there was the seed of a promise that grew up like a mighty oak tree throughout the Old Testament. As greater and greater light was shed on it. And so in Exodus, we see this promise that's made to this one man and his family grows to be made to a whole nation. 
And these people are brought out from slavery. And they're given God's instructions in the Ten Commandments after he's freed them from slavery. They become God's keeper that operates by fundamentally different rules than Egypt and the other nations of this world. And they get clearer and clearer ideas, and it all leads up to Jesus. And that's the 30,000 feet right there. But the idea is God brings news. And right here we have the second chapter of that story. And that's what's going on in the Passover. That's what the Passover was meant to celebrate. That God is, in a sense, bringing a new creation to life. What does God do in the face of sin and injustice? Well, He does judge it. We talked about that a lot as we walked through Exodus. God brings judgment on Egypt. God brings judgment on those who chase after false gods and not look to Him and His grace for sufficiency. But God also brings mercy. God opens a door and He creates a community surrounding His promises. And that's what Passover was meant to celebrate. God is bringing a new creation to life. In fact, that's what that word Passover means. So you may have noticed it talks about the destroyer, the angel of judgment, passing over the households of the Israelites. Well, that word Passover, it also is used in Genesis chapter 1. God creating all things. You remember it says, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the face of the waters. That word hover, it's Passover. So it's not just God bringing judgment and wreaking havoc on Egypt. What's going on here as these Israelites are eating this meal in Egypt in the safety of their homes, covered by the blood of this sacrificial lamb, God is bringing a new creation to life. He is hovering over them to make something new. The Passover was God judging the oppression and wickedness of Egypt, but it was also Him bringing a new, different kingdom to life. And so that switches and flips everything on its head. You may have noticed the very first uh, verse we read this morning, it speaks about this as going to be the first month, the first month of your year. Passover became day one. The calendar changed. It became the hinge on which everything else in the Israelites' world turned. Everything else they planned in their year hinged on its relationship to Passover, the first day, the first month, this new creation has happened. It has flipped everything on its head. And now this newness becomes the hinge on which the world turns. Now everything else in their life is defined by its relationship to this celebration that God instituted. So how did they celebrate it? It's mentioned in the passage here. There's a couple of things. How did they celebrate the Passover? The first one was they set a week we at best, what, set apart a couple hours on a holiday to celebrate. They had a week. The Israelites were taught by their calendar to see their life was this. God moves and it leads them to rest. God moves and He brings them rest. That's where their year started. The first month, the first day, it begins not with them trying to figure out New Year's resolutions because they feel guilty. They gained 15 pounds last year or they really messed up something in a relationship. And so they're trying to feel uh, guilt laden and drive them into doing something better in this new year. Their year began with this. God works and brings us rest. God works and we can rest. So they set apart an entire week and that's how their year began. And what did they do during this week? The only thing they did was worship and eat. That's it. It's 
great. Amen. <laughs> all they did is they heard they heard the good news that God works for them and loves them and is putting them in a community where He loves them and is defined by His promises, and they ate. That's it. That's great. A whole week. And in worship, they met with God. That's embodied later on in Exodus when God gives instructions about the tabernacle. Where he essentially says, you are my people and you dwell in tents. Well, I'm going to dwell in a tent too. And I'm going to dwell in the middle of your king. And later on, they're established in the promised land. And God takes up residence ceremonially in a temple. God says, you're established in the land and you have your homes. Well, I'm going to have a house built for you too. Because I dwell with you. And all of that foreshadows, of course, Jesus who comes as one of us to uh, literally dwell with us. But that's getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. So they worshipped and they met with God in worship and they ate. But these meals were honestly a little bit odd, right? It hits the idea of unleavened bread or bread made without yeast. And that's a little, I don't know, if I'm starting a meal and I'm inviting you over, I'm not going to make bread without yeast. It, it's, have you ever had it? It, it? it doesn't rise. It doesn't taste good at all. All the good stuff is in the yeast, right? Well, not really. But for the most part, we stick the yeast in to make the bread rise and to make everything stick together and, and, and taste good. But these meals were weird. It was bread with no yeast. And not only that, we didn't read it in this passage, but we read it in the, the one last week, that they were going to eat eating uh, bitter herbs. Like, they needed to go out of their way to make sure this did not taste really good. Bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Now, there's some questions as to why, but I think this points to an aspect not just of God bringing newness. It was almost like eating the bread without yeast and the bitter herbs was a reminder and the creating of a longing in their hearts that God would make all things new. In a sense, the meal was a reminder not just that God brought newness, but that He was going to make all things new and we weren't there yet. Like if eating the abundance of a big meal would... Uh, get us past the point of realizing we still live in a place that's not perfect. A place that's not made new. And the reason I think that is because if you look later in the Old Testament, places like Isaiah, Isaiah places like Jeremiah, when it pictures the end of all things, where God is taking everything, it pictures an abundant feast. An abundant feast with succulent meats, an abundant feast with uh, abundance of new wine. It doesn't talk about unleavened bread. It doesn't talk about bitter herbs. So what I think is going on is they ate that. And there was bitterness built into the meal to remind them, if they needed reminding, we're not there yet. God's point wasn't just to give us good stuff for us and our family. God's making all things new. And He's building a longing in for us um, for that future. For that future bringing of newness that He will do. I think it was a reminder in the midst of their world that God's mercy was not fully arrived yet. That they were created as a new kingdom under God, but they weren't arrived at the fullness of His, His, uh, His rest. It was almost like, um, think of it this way, it was almost like each year they're running a marathon. And the Passover were like these the, the water stations. I'm talking about this theoretically. I've never read. I've, I've never actually ran a marathon. But the water stations along the way. You don't stop and hang out at the water station, right? If you do, this is your entire time up here. You're going to cramp 
thought and all that. You, you grab the water to keep going. Passover was a reminder. Keep going. Keep going. Yeah, there's bitterness in this meal because there's bitterness in our life, but it is leading to where God is making all things new. And the final aspect of their celebration, it was the blood on the doorpost. And we talked last week about the idea of the Passover lamb being a sacrifice. And the idea of sacrifice being that idea of substitution. That built into this idea of Old Testament sacrifices that we can bring something and something can be uh, punished on our behalf. That God can judge our sins by removing them from us. And all of that pointed forward to Jesus. Not just lambs. All pointed forward to the God who would send His Son as a human being. Who would voluntarily take on the sin of you and me. That it might be judged and judged rightly at His cross by being removed from us. So that there is no more wrath for us. There is only His kindness and His love. But right here, they were to take the sacrifice, and they were to take the blood from the sacrifice and put it on their doorpost. And this was maybe the main thing of the Passover. It's what I tend to think about when I say Passover, blood on the doorpost. At this feast, a lamb was taken, and it was killed for me for the meal, and the blood was taken and put on the, both sides of the doorway and along the top. And that blood marked this household and all in it as those who were leaving Egypt. Those who were not defined by Egypt. It was almost like our baptism it was a mark on that household. It was a mark on them that they didn't belong to Pharaoh. Pharaoh had no claim on them. Despite his false power that had worked really real effects in their life, they did not belong to Pharaoh. A reminder to us in our baptism is that we do not belong to our sin. That we do not belong to Satan. That we do not belong to the false powers that so often try to claim our affections and our hearts. That we belong to God. And that leads me to my next point, actually. Um, because the question might be, we talk about Passover, and obviously in this passage, like it says over and over again, you are going to celebrate this, commemorate this throughout the generations. You might be thinking, well, Passover was a couple weeks ago. We, why didn't we celebrate this. Like, why didn't we get a lamb at the butcher shop, and uh, why didn't we do this? Well, the truth is, we did. And we do. In Jesus. That's the next point. Jesus is our Passover. This meal, in every part, wasn't just a meal that looked back at God freeing that first generation of Israelites from slavery. It was a meal that looked forward to the future. And I've already talked about that. It created a longing that God was going to do something more than just deliver one generation of Israelites from slavery. That God was at work to bring newness in all of his creation. And it points forward to Jesus. How? Well, there's a couple of different ways that we can reflect on. The first one, think about it. The way uh, the Passover became day one for them. It became this week-long celebration to begin their, uh, their, their year. Well, in Jesus, there's a reason why the first Christians started celebrating worship, started gathering together on Sunday. I've talked about this a few times. But the significance that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, in the earliest Christians' imagination, as they were following the call of the Spirit, they said, this marks out and changes our lives. As Jews, they would have worked all week toward the day of rest. Work, 
work for six days and on the seventh day rest. And they could sit back and relax and say, I did some good stuff this past week, but for the Christian, the victory of Jesus and his resurrection over death and the promise that is inherent in that, the Christian said, no, my week, not just my year, my week starts out from a place of worthiness in Jesus. My week starts out from there. That is the foundation and the beginning of my week. And that's our promise too, not just the first Christians. That's why we gather on Sunday morning. It's not just because most of us tend to have the day off because of weekends and the, the work schedule. We gather on Sundays, guys, because our week begins with this. Us coming together and being nourished by God. Think about it. The first significant action that we all take when we gather for worship is to come into this room and not hear my good ideas, but hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. To hear his word preached and spoken. To hear his pardoning voice. To hear him call us to worship and hear him send us out with a word of blessing and benediction. We come into this room and we're reminded as we walk in, in a sense, that we are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. And it means we belong to him. And as we come to this table after this sermon is done, we are nourished by Him. That is where we begin our week. That is where we begin our lives together. Right here. We carry all of that with us into the rest of our lives. Um, how else it, does this apply to us? Or how else is this uh, unpacked by Jesus? Well, the, there's a significance, I think, in that the Passover meal takes place in homes. Notice it doesn't say you all need to gather somewhere in this centralized place. They gather together in their very ordinary homes. And the blood's put on the door post of their very ordinary homes. And the idea is this. Mercy found us here. Mercy found them there. God was leading them out of slavery. But that first Passover, when all the promises inherent in it was celebrated while they were still in Egypt. While they were still in the homes that every Egyptian would have sneered at. That's where mercy found them. Mercy didn't need it. Uh, God's mercy didn't need them to come to Him, to climb a mountain to find Him. He found them in the deepest, darkest places of their experience. Now, if anything, later on as the Old Testament expands, this may have gotten obscured. Not by God, but in the, the, the thinking of people's minds. Because the tabernacle happens, the, the temple happens, and then, you know, the Israelites are established in the promised land, and the temple was in a very specific place in Jerusalem where they might live, you know, a week's journey from there. And the Passover was then celebrated in Jerusalem. And so you, over time, you wouldn't celebrate it in your home. You would travel to Jerusalem and you would celebrate it there. But if that misconception took root in people's hearts, it's exploded in Jesus. Because in Jesus, we can know that the grace of God is ours in Christ, whether we're in a great cathedral, whether we're in a very humble storefront, whether we're at our homes, in the deepest times, in the darkest times of our lives, whether we're in the literal gutter. The mercy of God in Christ is ours. It's not limited to a location. He comes and finds us. We can't ascend to Him, and we never will, but He will descend to us and lift us up to Himself. That's one of the things I love, uh, the, the, um, 
church reformer John Calvin, his idea of what worship was and what was happening is when the people of God would gather together to hear the gospel and celebrate the Lord's Supper, they would be lifted up. His idea wasn't so much that God would come to our place. It was that, in a sense, we were transported into his presence. Like that door is a, I don't think it's too science fiction, like that door was a portal. My son just broke something. Um, <laughs> like that door is a portal, and when we walk in, the pain and the misery and the lies of this world stay there. And we're lifted into the presence of our Father who speaks over us grace and truth. That was his idea. And I've always loved that. That's an aside. Um, what else is going on today? We talk about the bitter herbs. This was not always a really tasty meal, necessarily. And I think all of that pointed not just to building a longing, like I said, but I also think it pointed to what Jesus would face for us. Because God's grace doesn't find us by pretending like sin doesn't exist. God doesn't simply throw justice aside. But think about what Jesus faced. He faced not just bitter herbs, he faced the bitterness of sin. He became sin for us. He drinks the cup of God's wrath against sin and then taken on, he, he drinks it to, to, to the dregs. And he makes a way open for us not to taste the bitterness against our sin, but to only taste the sweetness of the love of the Father for us. His cross became the place where sin was judged justly and all that's left for us is grace upon grace. And so we're covered by the blood. Not the blood of a lamb that might accidentally be misapplied. Think about the Passover. It depended on you being able to kill the lamb at the right time, the right day, and sticking the blood on the thing, even ceremonial. What if you had a lazy guy who was bad with the calendar and he like forgot? But our hope doesn't rest on some uh, also sinner, uh, a human being like every priest was sinner and rests on the shoulders of Jesus. And so it's secure. And we're covered by His blood. And so we're invited in that to let our fears go. To let our fears be gutted. Because they can't have power over us any longer. We're invited to watch the idols of our heart be toppled and be carried away. And we're invited into the arms of our loving Savior. And so in all of this, we are changed we are transformed. We are redefined, in a sense, as individuals and as a people. And, and we are able to be welcomed to a feast that's greater than even this Passover. And we are welcomed, or we are invited to become people who welcome others as well. Because of all of this, like I said, we become different people. And we see beginnings of that in the original Passover. You may have noticed there's instructions about uh, the presence of people who aren't Israelites. It talks about foreigners being there. Instructions about how they are to participate. That assumes they'll be there. It assumes they will be there. It assumes there will be such welcome in this nation, in this community, that people that don't belong to it by heritage or by last name or by connection will find the mercy of God and come in too. That even if you have the wrong last name, there's a place for you. It assumes they'll be there. That there's going to be even people on the outskirts that maybe aren't quite there yet. But there's welcome for them to come close 
and to see this story and the invitation for them to own it as well. There's also clear instructions, and I love this, about the presence of kids, children. It assumes children will be there, and the children will not be quiet. <laughs> the children will not be shoved off to a kid's table necessarily. The children are there, not just speaking when they're spoken to, but notice it assumes the kids are there saying, what is happening? What is going on? What, what does this mean to you? The kids are interrupting, and they want to know what's going on. Now, I want you to stop and think about that. The book of Exodus begins with what? The heinousness of the sin of a Pharaoh who was terrified of foreigners and strangers in his land and who put to death the babies, who warred against these strangers by warring against their children. That's what Pharaoh does. But what does God do? What does God do? He establishes a kingdom that assumes the presence of the foreigner, that assumes the presence of the children, does not turn them away, but invites them to come in, welcomes them to the feast as well. Our God is not like Pharaoh. I think we carry misconceptions about what His power can be because all we've ever seen, or all we tend to see, is power abused, power used for selfish ends. But that's not the kind of power God has. That's not how he uses his power. He is not like Pharaoh. Our God opens a door and invites us in and brings us in. So this morning, as we reflect on this, as we're about to come to this table, as we leave this place with the gospel ringing in our ears, know this, we are a people that have found an incredible grace. And we are called, like our God, to hold the door open for people. Even people we don't like, even people that mock us, even people that we don't understand, our calling is to open the door and hold it open. Not so they come in and they're like us. Not so they come in and they find hope in us. But that they come in and they find hope in our Jesus, who is wonderful beyond description, wonderful beyond measure, and has grace that is big enough for all. That there's a home for them here, because if I can find grace... Anyone can. Father, we come before you now as people who have been called by you together. A community, a new community, defined by your promises. And what great promises they are. I pray, God, as we reflect on what has been shown us here from your word today, that you would give us a greater love and dependence upon Jesus. That you would, uh, in kindness, show us all the ways that we're chasing after things that cannot satisfy and trying to eat meals at tables that cannot feed us. That you would turn us to you, that we would find our